Hi, you're listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network broadcasts from two shipping containers in Bushwick, Brooklyn, located next to fabulous Roberta's Pizza at 261 Moore Street. We Dig Plants is produced and engineered by Jack Inslee. Uh, we are Groundworks Inc., and I'm Alice Marcus Krieg. And I'm Carmen DeVito. And we design, install, and maintain gardens in and around New York City. Uh, for the past couple of weeks, we've been having an economic botany series um, and the plants that made the U.S. the U.S. So today, um, we're going to talk about rice. Yes, it does grow here. It's not just in your Chinese food. It's a big part of our history. Rice was brought to the States via a storm-battled ship in 1685. Uh, forced to seek refuge from bad weather, this ship was from Madagascar, and it limped into Charlestown Harbor, which is actually Charleston, South Carolina. I have to say Charlestown because I'm talking about 1685. It has an E at the end. Yes, towny. Towny. Right, when England still owned us. Um, the colonists offered protection to this... Uh, ship captain and helped repair the damage to the ship and as repayment seeds of rice that were carried on the ship were given to them so the first rice seed was called the golden seed rice and it was named for its color and it was planted in the fields around charleston and north carolina rice was grown very successfully in south carolina as early as 1680 but by the early 18th century, with the slave system established on a large scale, rice then becomes a major export crop of the region. Uh, rice planting was extremely profitable, and Charleston rice exports rose from 10,000 pounds in 1698 to over 20 million pounds by 1730. Uh, South Carolina's tidal swamps were well-suited for this crop. So that's just 30 years and it doubled as a commodity. So you can just see the dollar signs in these yeah. settlers' eyes. <laughs> yeah, and what else is going to grow in the swamps? Exactly. I mean, they had to, you know, they had this, uh, for lack of a better word, a captive labor force. And they had to, you know, there were periods during the year when other crops, there wasn't a lot to do. Right. So it, it meshed well with the other things that they were growing, like tobacco and indigo. Indigo, right exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So um, I found an 18th century description of rice growing in South Carolina. And it reads like this. The best land for rice is a wet, deep, miry soil, such as is generally to be found in the cypress swamps, or a black, greasy mold with a clay foundation. But the very best lands may be melorated by lying them underwater at proper seasons. Good crops are produced even the first year when the surface of the earth appears in some degree covered with the trunks and branches of the trees. The proper months for sowing rice are April, March, or I'm sorry, are March, April, and May. The method is to plant it in trenches or rows made with a hoe about three inches deep. The land must be kept pretty clear from weeds, and at the latter end of August or the beginning of September, it will be fit to be reaped. Rice is not the worse for being a little green when cut. They let it remain on the stubble till dry, which will be in about two or three days if the weather be favorable. And 
Then they will house it and put it in large stacks. Afterwards, it is threshed with a flail and then winnowed, which was formerly a very tedious operation, but it is now performed with great ease by a very simple machine, a wind fan, but lately used here as a prodigious improvement. Hmm. The next part of the process is grinding, which is done in small mills made of wood of about two feet in diameter. It is then winnowed again and afterwards put into a mortar made of wood sufficient to contain from half a bushel to a bushel where it is beat with a pestle of the size suitable to the mortar and to the strength of the person who is to pound it. That's interesting. So they had different size uh, mortar and pestles for different slaves, probably. Yeah, exactly. This is done to free the rice from the thick skin, and it is most laborious part of, of the work. It is then sifted from the flour and dust made by the pounding, and afterwards a wire sieve called a market sieve it is separated from the broken and small rice, which fits it for the barrels in which it is carried to market. They reckon 30 slaves a proper number for a rice plantation and to be tended with one overseer. These in favorable seasons and on good land will produce a surprising quantity of rice. So remember, that's, that's an 18th century description. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, I'm going to talk a little bit further about how um, it was actually um, uh, tilled and, and sown into the land, and there's a much more um, kind of layman's uh, description, description of, it. of yeah. it. Yeah. So a little history. Do you want to tell us a little history, Carmen? Sure, about rice. It's a grain, of course, uh, like wheat, millet, or barley, and it provides carbohydrate to people who eat its seeds. It's essential. It's, it's you know, the stuff of life you know, from many parts of the world. Um, it grows wild in Southeast Asia. And um, from what I had read, people probably first began to farm rice in, in Thailand about 4,000 BC. And then from there, people learned how to grow it in Southern China, North of Thailand and in India. And, you know, certainly people were growing rice in India in the Harappan period, about 2,500 BC. There's some evidence of that. And in China in the late Stone Age, about 3,000 BC. Uh, they believe that rice may have been brought to West Asia and Greece about 300 BC by the armies of Alexander the Great. He brought a lot of good things. He didn't. He wasn't just bad. He just needed a better PR person. Um, <laughs> he was great. He was Alexander great. Alexander was great. Great, I tell you. <laughs> by the time of the Roman Empire, people were growing some rice around the Mediterranean Sea in Southern Europe and even in North Africa, including Egypt, which is really interesting because I think of Egypt as being very dry. But of course, with the Nile floods, I would imagine right. that you'd be able to grow rice. And those lowlands, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, by 800 AD, thanks to trade uh, with China and Indonesia, people in East Africa were also growing rice. So soon people were growing rice all over Southern Africa. Um, and from what I'd read, it was probably the Chinese farmers who first invented what, you know, we, we sort of associate with rice growing, the rice paddy. And this is sort of a system of growing rice in these artificial man-made ponds, which saves water and also helps to kill weeds. Now, in the late Middle Ages in Europe, the people blame rice and the standing water in the rice paddies for causing malaria by giving uh, the mosquitoes a good place to lay their eggs. So many towns actually discourage farmers from planting rice to try to prevent malaria. And it's really interesting because um, where I'm from in southern Italy, even into the, into the 20th century, there was outbreaks of malaria mm -hmm. in the southern parts of the country where it was swampy, mm -hmm. uh, like Calabria and stuff. 
Um, now, when the European settlers came to North America in the 1600s, as Alice was saying, they brought the rice with them and they planted it in the in the southeast part of the continent where, you know, the climate was was right for it. What we would consider, as Alice said, North and South Carolina. The West African people who were forced to come to North America slaves also brought rice with them um, because they had a tradition of growing that. So, you know, by the 1700s, um, a lot of farmers were growing rice in the North and South Carolina. And after the Civil War in the late 1800s, people also began to grow rice across the rest of the South, especially in Louisiana and in Mississippi, which is where I really associate rice growing. I can't imagine, uh, you know, Louisiana cuisine without rice in it. Right. You know, well, that's because, um, you know, after the Civil War, of, co- of course, the plantation era died. Mm-hmm. It wasn't fashionable to have slaves anymore, nor was it legal. Right. <laughs> and also land... Um, was becoming cheaper as you traveled west. Mm-hmm. So, so, but still, you know, people in Europe and North and South America still continued to eat more bread and noodles than rice. And it was really, you know, the peoples in Southern Asia and Southern Africa who really ate most of the rice. Um, but by 1700, it was established as a major crop for the colonists. Uh, that year alone, 300 tons of rice, the, the Carolina gold rice that Alice was describing earlier, was shipped to England. And they were producing rice so quickly, there were not enough ships to carry it. So, and as Alice said, unfortunately, after the Civil War, the plantation era died. And there were rav- ravaging hurricanes and other crop competition. Rice sort of moved westward into cheaper land, into the Louisiana and also, um, mechanization replaced the by hand cultivation, and prices were lowered, requiring lesser land co- lesser land costs. So it wasn't as profitable an export as it used to be. Then, um, as Chinese immigrants came into the U.S. for the building of the railroad, of course, rice was a staple in their diet, and they knew it well. And rice production began in Northern California, and in fact, to this day, it is a large market. Rice was also important to the gold rush of 1849 and for feeding the masses. And by 1920, California was a, a major producer, and, and actually still is. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we have to take a little break right now. We're gonna come back and finish talking about rice you're listening to we dig plants on the heritage radio network Wow, that's a sexy song. Doesn't it make you want to take your clothes off? (laughs) You know what's funny about that, Alice, is that (laughs) I grew up eating Carolina rice. My parents didn't didn't, um, absorb many of the food cultures of of when they came to the United States. They pretty much stayed with their diet, Mm -hmm. but they were enamored with the long rice because in Italy, it's short grain. It's Mm -hmm. arborio and it's like a thick, creamy. They were in love with this non-sticky 
long grain fluffy rice. So it was very frequently served at our house. It was one of the few like truly American products that we ate on a regular basis. Yeah, that's actually the advertising song. Um, Paula Lockhart sang that song. And I think it was from the 60s. It's fantastic. Yeah. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about where rice grows best for today's market. There are six main states. Um, In 1884, the machine age was beginning to affect every aspect of the American life. In that year, an Iowa wheat farmer pointed out that the broad prairie land of southwestern Louisiana and southeastern Texas had solid soil, which could hold heavy equipment like the machines that were used in Iowa for wheat. So there are six major states where rice is grown today, Um, Arkansas. Um, along the east side of the state at the Mississippi River, of course. And in that state, um, long grain is is cultivated, as is medium grain and specialty rice. Hmm. Now, specialty rice, I was actually very surprised to learn about this, um, aromatic rice, bismati, jasmine, oborio, and the baldo varieties are all grown here in, in the Arkansas. United States, in Arkansas hmm. and Louisiana, west of New Orleans, um, at, uh, near the city of Lafayette. Again, that's long grain, medium grain, and specialty rice. In Mississippi, um, the northwest part of the state at the river is long grain. And in Missouri, um, at the southeast side of the state, at the river is long grain and specialty rice. Um, in Texas, um, from Houston and up north along the Gulf is long grain and specialty varieties. And in California, east of San Francisco and Sacramento, um, and that's where medium grain and specialty rice. That's very interesting about California because I don't think of it as a state that gets much rain. You know, no, but so. I think it's it's in that valley, so I think mm-hmm. it, it must be you know that's where all that. Northern California horticulture <laughs> exists. So, um, Carmen, why don't you talk a little bit about rice as a botanical species? Sure. Um, well, its botanical name, the the rice that we um, that we eat is Oriza sativa, and it's in the uh, Poaceae family, which is the grass family, also known as the Gramineae. And the plant itself is is a grass that can grow about you know a three feet. Uh, to 15 feet long in deep water. Um, it has this straight stem uh, upright and it's composed of these like series of joint-like nodes and a leaf grows from each of the nodes. It's kind of like a, th- like it's a grass. It's, it's very obviously a grass. Um, and the seed or the grain grows on these branch-like spikes which kind of arch over. And the grain, of course, is the most economically important part of the rice plant. And it's the endosperm is the final product that is consumed. Um, this rice, this Ariza sativa, should not be confused with wild rice, which is the North American plant called Zizania aquatica. It's also in the grass family, but it's not closely related. Although I did realize that um, that's the wild grain rice, and we're going to talk about that a little bit further um, and, uh, and how the Indians actually harvest that. Yeah, that's a very fascinating story, too. Um, What I also found interesting was that 90% of the rice produced in the U.S. is consumed by the U.S. So from meager beginnings in South Carolina, today rice production in the U.S. is the most advanced and innovative in the world. Some Asian countries continue to produce their rice by hand, 
over 300 man acres per man, which is pretty amazing. I know. So historically, how was it planted by hand? Let's talk about that for a second. Draft animals, um, mules and oxen, could actually not be used because their weight was too much on the soil and they would just, just end up sinking into the bog. So human hands really did the work. A system of dikes and ditches was engineered, um, and a system of wooden gates was fabricated and manually operated, and that would regulate the water in the fields through the growing season. March and April was soil prep time, um, plowing and harrowing, um, and replanting would be required sometimes in May and as late as June if the earlier seed didn't take. Planting by hand um, meant dropping the seed into a hole dug by the toes of the laborers and tamped down by the use of the foot, by the heel. So alternatively, mm. the seed could be washed in a clay soil, giving the seed sort of a coat of dirt and then dropping this onto the surface of the soil. Carolina gold uh, variety was flooded three times during the growing process. The first flood was called the sprout flood and that allowed germination. And the second flooding was called point or stretch flow. And that actually killed grasses and weeds in the fields and protected the plants from approaching animals or insects because they had to walk through water. Um, and then the third and final flooding was the harvest or the labby flow. Um, and it was this water source that actually supported the stalks of the rice as they lengthened and the heads ripened. Wow. It sounds like, I mean, it really sounds like backbreaking work when it, it had to be done manually. Yeah. And that, that's what, you know, they, these plantations really needed the, the slave labor um, to do the work. Um, I actually read, and Carmen, you can talk a little bit more about this, um, some information from Middleton Place, which is a plantation in Charleston, um, if you want to talk a little bit more about how it was actually harvested. Yes, I think I've been to Middleton Place. Yeah, um, it's I, on the Ashley River. Yeah, they have a, a butterfly garden, and not for butterfly attracting, but it's actually shaped like a butterfly. Yeah, and it's actually the first it's the first planned garden in the United States. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, I didn't really, I didn't realize at the time that I was there that it was um, a, it's rice, a rice plantation. Rice plantation. Mm -hmm. But uh, interestingly, during the harvest time, the grain would be cut with a small sickle or a rice hook, just like wheat would have been done by our ancestors in Europe, and it would be laid to dry on its own stubble before being gathered. Then it would be loaded onto a barge and carried to the processing area of the plantation. The threshing or the removing of the grain from the stalk might be accomplished with flails or on some plantations by a threshing mill. Winnowing would separate the grain from the chaff. Often a stiff breeze would be used to help blow the refuse from the rice grains as they were poured to the ground from a winnowing house on stilts. And I have something, a really interesting um, little personal story. Um, winnowing is something that I always watch my grandmother do in Italy, and she did it uh, with beans. She would gather mm -hmm. the dry beans, and she would put them in these big um, mesh sort of baskets, and then she would shake them, uh -huh. and all of the material... And separate, and yeah. And it would float away mm -hmm. on the wind, and that's like one of my like most clear memories of her on the farm. Um, so the rice would then be gathered and sold as rough rice with the husks still on, or uh, it would be milled on site or in Charleston to produce an edible product. 
Now, a rice mortar and pestle or a pounding mill would be used to pound the rice to remove the tough outer husk. The rice would be fanned with a, a fanner basket like those still made of sweet grass, which you can get in, in Charleston, um, to separate the husk. And then the rice would be polished in a mortar or the pounding mill to remove the layer of oily but highly nutritious bran from the grains. The bran would be removed so that the rice would not spoil during um, shipping or storage. So, you know, brown rice was not prized then. The whiter, the more polished, the better. The cleaner, right. Yeah. Um, as opposed to the Native American rice, the wild rice, uh, Zizania aquata, which is also edible. Um, and this was this was the rice that the Native Americans harvested. Um, and, and it's historically found in Amer- Native American diets. Uh, their method of harvesting is actually quite mystical. Um, it had nothing to do with toes and heels and machines. It was, of course, done by hand. Um, and one one Native American culture, the Ojibwa, consider wild rice to be a sacred component in their culture. The rice is harvested with the use of a canoe. So one person vans or knocks the rice into the canoe with two small poles called knockers or flails, while the other while the other person in the canoe paddles very slowly and uses a push pole to bend the ripe grain heads um, down into the canoe. So it's a much more gentle, mystical harvest Mm -hmm. than this kind of, you know, economic process. Large scale. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The size of the knockers, as well as other details, are prescribed in each tribe's state and tribal law. Really? Yeah. So by Minnesota statute, knockers must be at most one inch in diameter, 30 inches long, and one pound in weight. And each each, um, culture had a different um, requirement. So I found that kind of interesting. Hmm. But I didn't find any source for that. Um, the plants are not beaten with the knockers, but require a gentle brushing to dislodge the mature grain. So uh, again, their whole outlook on the on the rice is is that they're it, it's a gift. It's not for cultivation. It's more a gift from the land to be respected. Um, and they actually call this this plant good berry, menumen, which means good berry. Um, and then when you know some seeds would fall to the to the bottom, and then of course they would grow for the next year. Hmm. So for these groups, this harvest is an important cultural heritage, and they continue to do that exactly in uh, Michigan. Michigan, yeah, a lot, a lot, a lot of the states in the Middle East. Yeah, because I do, uh, I do sometimes see it for sale in uh-huh. the supermarkets in the middle of the country. Yeah, yeah. it's great. Mm-hmm. So this kind of wraps up our show today on rice. Yes, it does grow here in the United States. It's not just in your Chinese restaurants. It was, and is, a, an amazing economic commodity. Um, of course, we capitalized greatly on it. We fought wars over it and established our United States for it. So thank you to Jack Inslee for producing and engineering. Thanks to Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and to our sponsor today. And we look forward to seeing you in the garden. Thanks for listening.
Whole Foods Market celebrates Earth Month with the Do Something Real Film Festival, a collection of six provocative character-driven films focused on food, environmental issues, and everyday people with a greater vision. Come see one of the six features at City Cinema's Village East from Saturday, April 16th through Thursday, April 21st, every night at 6 p.m. Learn more about the films and special events at www.dosomethingreal.com. That's www.dosomethingreal.com. Sponsored by Whole Foods Market. In 2010, EscapeMaker.com won an Emmy Award for their agritourism webisode. So this year they thought, why not bring agritourism and green getaway ideas right to you? Come to the Green Getaways Local Food and Travel Expo on April 30th at One Hanson Place, home of the Brooklyn Flea and former Williamsburg Savings Bank. Presented by Amtrak, Zipcar, and I Love New York, the carbon-free event will be a day filled with food, prizes, workshops, and kids' activities. Over 50 getaway destinations, from counties to local farms and bed and breakfast within a day's drive or train ride of New York City, will be exhibiting on the main floor and in the huge bank vault downstairs. See what's hot in sustainable travel and receive special show-only discounts. Bro NYC will be doing workshops on the green market, and Appalachian Mountain Club will offer workshops on adventure bicycling and hiking via mass transit. EscapeMaker.com will be giving away over 50 getaway prizes, ranging from zipline adventure passes to an overnight stay at Mohonk Mountain House. Travel greener, eat local. Come to the expo on April 30th. Get your tickets now at www.escapemaker.com. The following message has been brought to you by Fairway Market. What's the buzz about honey? Well, those busy little bees are up to something, and it is delicious. The Fairway label honey is superb. Fairway only hires worker bees that are the best at what they do. This makes for a great-tasting, high-quality honey at an amazing value with the Fairway stamp of approval. And on top of being delicious, honey is a great substitute for other sweeteners and can even benefit your health. This includes better energy, respiratory improvements, and balanced blood sugar levels. It's a no-brainer. Get your Fairway honey today.